They say that there are no atheists in foxholes. I've never myself been in a foxhole, but I'm sure if I would ever find myself in one, I would be praying. And I would also uh, bet that that saying would also ring true inside the belly of a great fish. I've never been inside the belly of a big fish, but I would imagine that if I was inside one, I would also be praying. That's what we find the prophet Jonah doing as we are continuing in our series and open up to chapter 2 of the book of Jonah. Would you go there with me right now as we read through his prayer while he is inside the fish? Jonah chapter 2, starting in verse 1. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called out to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever, but you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Jonah's prayer fascinates me. It is fascinating on one level just because of the context in which it is given from inside the belly of a fish. And even though he's still alive, wouldn't you agree he's not out of danger yet? He's still in the depths of the sea. Will God provide another act of deliverance or is this only a temporary respite until he is slowly digested? And I guess it makes sense that Jonah would be praying in this moment because isn't it often in times of extreme circumstances, of uncertainty, when we are in a dark place that we cry out to God in prayer. But this prayer also fascinates me, not just because of the context that it's given in, but also the content as well. He is praying a prayer largely of gratitude shouting grateful praise to God for saving his life. Which I guess also makes sense, right? Because God has just saved him from drowning with this incredible, unbelievable miracle of a fish swallowing him up. And we talked last week, if you weren't here with us, about how just outlandish and unbelievable that is. Not saying it didn't happen, but just that so unbelievable that God would swallow up Jonah with this fish to save him. We talked about how that is kind of exactly the point because God's grace itself is outlandish and unbelievable. And when you experience that unbelievable grace of God, you can't help but give grateful praise.
praise? Have you found that to be the case in your life? But again, going back to the context here, Jonah is still in the depths of the sea. He is inside the fish, not yet out of the woods, and yet he is grateful. This is not meant to be a a sermon on Thanksgiving today, but I can't help but just pause at the beginning here and say, if you ever find yourself in extreme circumstances where there's uncertainty, where where you're in a dark place, you feel like you're sinking, that you have hit rock bottom and you need some courage and strength, I would encourage you to give grateful praise to God. In fact, I would contend that the circumstances where gratitude seem hardest to give are the circumstances in which we need to give it the most. I was reading about German pastor Martin Rinkart this week who served uh, in the walled town of Elenburg during the horrors of the Thirty Years' War back in the 1600s, specifically 1618 to 1648. Elenburg, that town he ministered in, became this overcrowded refuge for the surrounding area. And fugitives would go there, and and as they went there, they suffered uh, from epidemic and famine. In fact, at the beginning of the year 1637, it was called the Year of Great Pestilence. And there were four ministers working in Elenburg at the time. One of them decided to abandon his post for a healthier area and could not be persuaded to return. Pastor Rinkart officiated the funerals of the other two. As the only pastor left, he often conducted funeral services for as many as 40 to 50 persons a day, some 4,480 in all, according to his journal. In May of that year, his own wife passed away. I can't even imagine being in that context. Yet living in a world where it seemed like things could not get any worse, Pastor Rinkart wrote the following prayer for his children to recite daily. Maybe you recognize the words. Now thank we all our God with hearts and hands and voices who wondrous things hath done, in whom the world rejoices, who from our mother's arms has led us on our way with countless gifts of love and still is ours today. Oh, in the worst of times, gratitude can be your greatest ally. For it reminds us of the good things that we forget to be thankful for, right? That we take for granted. But most of all, it reminds us of our good, good Heavenly Father and the countless gifts of love that are ours today from Him, no matter what the day brings. I know some of you are dealing with some tough times. And and there may be many of you that are dealing with things that, that I don't know about. I want to encourage you to make grateful praise a part of your prayer life. Try it this week and see what difference it makes in your life. Jonah's prayer fascinates me because of the context inside the fish, because of its content, thankful praise amid uncertainty. But it also fascinates me because of how it shows that a change is happening in Jonah. There seems to be a transformation that is starting to happen in Jonah's heart. He at least admits 
that he is in need of saving. Remember that part where he says, you hurled me into the depths. I have been banished from your sight to the roots of the mountains. I have sunk down into the earth. It has barred me in forever. Jonah is realizing that he's in a bad place. It's kind of stating the obvious, but he's realizing that he is in a bad place. And you know, the prophet Isaiah really puts into perspective how all of us are in need of saving and are in a bad place. I want to read this familiar text to you in the New Living Translation where it says in Isaiah 64, we are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall and our sin sweeps us away like the wind. This is not to say that, that we are worthless. On the contrary, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. The word tells us we are made in the image of God. Our lives were bought with a price, the most expensive price in the universe. Our very Savior's life. We matter to God. We just need to remember that we are not God. We talked about that last week too. Even the best that we can do is like filthy rags compared to the holiness of our creator. Seems like Jonah is starting to catch on to this a little bit. And then Jonah admits that only he can be saved by God. I love the, the children's story today, Dan. Thank you for, for sharing it. To remind us that this is kind of something we're, that, that Jonah is starting to uh, have an epiphany about. You know, I, I, I can only be saved by God. He, he talks about it several times in his prayer. I will look to the Lord for my salvation comes from him. I don't have the text on the screen, but my favorite text, which is coming to my mind right now, is Ephesians chapter 2, where it says, for it is by grace you have been saved. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. The only way we are saved is by God, and we should not fight it, <laughs> right? We should accept his saving. Seems like Jonah is starting to catch on to that. And then he promises to change his attitude. I will look to the Lord, and what I have vowed, I will make good. Jonah has been running, protesting God's call, but now in the grip of grace, he's, he's making a turn back to God, promising to make good on his vow. And remember, he's saying all this before any assurance is given for escape from the fish. This also reminds me of another text. You know, many of you may know it very well where Paul talks in, in Romans chapter 12 about having us be living sacrifices. Don't conform to the pattern of this world. Be transformed. But at the very beginning, he sets the context. He says, therefore, I urge you to do this, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Because you have experienced that grace and mercy, well, then let it take you beyond where it found you. It is to transform you not just leave you where, you where it found you. Now, this might seem like a great place to stop the sermon today. All we need is a nice, inspiring story of how someone experienced God's grace and transformed their life, and, and the message will be nice and neatly wrapped in, in, in a bow, and, and we're ready to go home. And maybe you're thinking, that would be a record for Darren. Man, 15 minutes, and we're out of here. Sounds good. But I don't think we are supposed to wrap up the message yet. In fact, this is what I find when I read the story. I don't know about you, but every chapter in the book of Jonah, it is hard to wrap things up nice and neatly in a bow. There is tension that seems to always remain. 
as you go through his story. And there is still some tension here, I think, in chapter 2. Something else that fascinates me about this prayer is the tone of Jonah. Did you catch it the first go around? I think that he is genuinely grateful for his deliverance and promises to complete a service to God. That's very good, but, but listen to his tone. It, it, I think you really get a sense of it in verse 8 where he says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs, but I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. Jonah expresses his conversion or repentance by contrasting himself to the idolaters. I think he has some nerve <laughs> doing that after what we have read in the previous chapter. In fact, the only idolaters, I know Nineveh has been mentioned, and he could be talking about the Ninevites, but the only idolaters that have been a, a part of the story so far are the sailors on the ship, right? And on the boat, in the midst of the storm, they were the ones with greater faithfulness to God than God's prophet. They were the ones cajoling God's prophet to pray, not the other way around. They are described as fearing the Lord, make a sacrifice and promises to him while Jonah is running as far away as he can get from God and rebelling against his call. I think there's still some self-centeredness, some arrogance in Jonah's tone here, even as he is trying to get back in a good place with God. In fact, many commentators point out that this is also illustrated in how there is a repetition of the pronoun I ten times between verses 2 and 9, and also about seven or eight times of my or me. I don't have it on the screen for you, but I'll read just a few excerpts of the prayer again, this time really overemphasizing those pronouns and see if the tone feels a little different this go-around. In my distress, I called to the Lord. From the depths of the grave, I called for help. You hurled me into the deep. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I'm not sure that tone is completely pure <laughs> from Jonah. And if you think, well, Darren, I think you're reading into this too much, well, maybe that's fair. But maybe we could at least agree on this. I didn't find anywhere in that prayer where he said, Lord, I'm sorry that I ran. Did you? I'm sorry I disagreed with your call, with the mission you gave me. You were right. I don't read any of that. I just read, man, I'm, I'm in these circumstances. <laughs> And I'm going to call out to you, Lord. Thank you for saving me from these circumstances. Jonah sees so clearly the literal idols that the pagans worship, but he doesn't see the more subtle idols in his own life. This is a sobering thought for us as we seek to do the righteous things of God. Are there idols that we might be overlooking, that I might be overlooking in my own life? But then we get to the most fascinating part of the prayer to me. It happens at the end when it's over. God commands the fish to vomit Jonah up on dry land. 
I'm trying to decide what the most unbelievable moment of God's grace has been so far in the story. God sending a fish to swallow up Jonah amid his rebellion or causing the fish to vomit him up amid his continued rebellion. Jonah never says, I'm sorry for running. I was wrong. And yet God's like, I can still use this guy. I'm still going to send him. Now, please don't misunderstand the point here. This is not to say that behavior doesn't matter. In fact, I contend that Jonah's prayer teaches us that behavior absolutely does matter, that God's grace isn't meant to leave us where it finds us, but to take us so much further. But at the same time, I also think it teaches us that God is so merciful, he is so good, he is so patient, so invested in you and me that even when we are not as far along as we need to be, he does not give up on us. This makes me think of a time in my life when I was not nearly as far as I should have been. But you know, it was a, it was a very major transition in my life. See, I was moving from the third to the fourth grade. It was a big deal. And, you know, I have told the story, you know, in other churches. It's a little weird telling this at Calamesa because I went to Mesa Grande Academy. Some of you may have had the same teacher that I had who taught for years at Mesa Grande in the fourth grade, Mrs. Evard. Doesn't that name uh, sound like it would strike fear in the hearts of 10-year-olds? <laughs> Mrs. Evard. Now, Mrs. Evard had a reputation at Mesa Grande of being this kind of strict, no-nonsense teacher, and she had some firm rules. But those of you who knew her, and she was a member of this church for many years, she was a sweet and wonderful person. But for some reason, her reputation, and I think the fourth graders, they were kind of in on it. I think she encouraged them to do this. They would scare the third graders before going into her class that, you know, she's this really scary teacher and you better be worried. So I decided that Mrs. Evard was a terrible person, an awful teacher, before the first day I went to class. I thought that uh, I was not going to give her any chance because I had decided she was bad. So before even the first day, I was already in rebellion of her. And I did some terrible things to Mrs. Evard. Uh, things, I have shared this story at a, at a chapel at MGA, so the kids know not to do these things. Uh, but I would write nasty letters to her on my, on my assignments, like I you're, have a terrible attitude, Mrs. Evard, you need to change your ways, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, it was terrible, it was terrible. I remember one time she sent me to the principal's office because I was acting out in class and it was during recess, right before recess, and I was so angry because I couldn't go to recess. And I was standing outside of Mr. Dudley's office and he, because he was with another student, and I decided that I was going to leave <laughs> and go play at recess and not go to the principal's office like I was supposed to. Of course, Mrs. Evards found me out outside in the playground and was really disappointed and uh, with the help of my parents and the principal, I eventually apologized, but I just, I resented her, rebelled against her. But you know what, that lady, she never gave up on me. 
she would try to find things that, that I was interested in. And of course, she, she learned very quickly. I loved sports. I was very competitive. And she learned that I liked math. I did very well on math assignments in class. And she had this competition. Maybe some of you remember this, where you had to memorize your multiplication tables and say them under a certain amount of time. And if you did that, you could go out for pizza with Mrs. Evard, she would pay for you. So any students that made it under a certain amount of time, I don't remember what it was, in a certain amount, I think it was multiplication tables for the number nine specifically, anyway. And weeks before this was going on, she knew that this would be something I would care about, that I would want to, to really prepare for. And so she would ask me every day, Darren, how are you practicing your, your times tables? I, I think you can really do a great job. I think you get one of the best scores in the class. After the way I treated her, she didn't, she didn't have any, <laughs> no reason for her to be so kind to me. I remember when she would drop off my, my homework assignments that were graded from the night before, she would lean over and whisper, great job on your assignment. I bet if you keep working this hard, you're going to be able to go to pizza with me. So the day of the competition came, and wouldn't you know it, I got one of the best scores in the class. So that day, while all the other students were with a teacher's aide, Mrs. Evard took me just down the road here to New York Pizzeria for lunch. And I can remember um, not a lot from that conversation, but just that she said over and over, Darren, I'm so proud of you. So glad you're in my class. And I remember thinking, and I should have said it, may this be a lesson to all of us, say this to people that you're grateful for. But I remember thinking it, you know, Mrs. Evard's not so bad. In fact, she's really kind of cool. I was such a rotten kid in her class, but she never gave up on me. And if my fourth grade teacher was that invested in my life, imagine how much more your creator and savior is invested in yours. His unbelievable grace is sufficient enough to save you, powerful enough to transform you, and also patient enough not to give up on you. 